The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles again to John chapter 5. If you remember the context of John 5, Jesus came into Jerusalem for an unnamed feast and healed a man who had been lame at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And there was a controversy about this because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And so rather than being uh, overwhelmed by the miracle, people were fixated on the fact that he broke the, the, the Mishnah, the laws that the Pharisees uh, and scribes had laid out. So they fixated on that. And a showdown happens later on in the temple. And Jesus begins to defend himself in the temple. And and Jesus makes a remarkable statement in verse 17. He says, just as the Father is working, in other words, God the Father works on the Sabbath, I also work. And they understood that to mean, I'm God. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And we've seen how Jesus comes out and pleads with these people and says, look at me, I am the Son of God. And we look at we looked at last week the four witnesses that he called out. He said, look at John the Baptist. Look at the works that I've done. Look at the Father's testimony about me. And finally, remember the Scriptures, for it's they that speak about me. So he's brought out these witnesses, and he's pleaded with them. And he says, look to me. Believe that I am the Son of God. And what's completely astonishing, and I just find this just so incredible, is the absolute and complete rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember who's preaching here. Who's preaching? Jesus is preaching. And yet the hundreds and the thousands of people that are listening to him here in the temple reject him. Reject him. Yet people today say if we just have the right methods and the right music, the right ambiance, the right atmosphere, then people will come. Maybe if the preacher's good-looking enough. It didn't work with Jesus, did it? Are we better than Jesus? What's going on here? This is a, there's a remarkable verse here, and I think it's the, it's the capstone verse that, that defines the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, he, he's, he's, just imagine him there in the, in the temple court, And now he looks at the people and he says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come to me. Jesus is talking about a refusal of the will, an obstinacy of heart, a moral rejection. And notice how he describes saving faith here. He describes saving faith as a coming, erkamai, that you may come to me, that you may leave your current position and travel to the position where I am. That's what he's saying. It's moving from one position 
to another. It's turning from that old life where they are and coming to this new life where He is. And here Jesus gives us, I think, a very telling description of unbelief. Unbelief is not just a mental mindset. It's a moral reality. It's a moral position. It's a spiritual condition. It's an all-encompassing way of life, unbelief. And notice how Jesus describes this way of life. Look at the, the second part of verse 40. He says, that you may have life. What's he implying? They're dead. He says, you're spiritually dead. You don't have life. Your position is, is that you lack life. That's why you don't come to me because you're dead. And this is what the Bible teaches about every single unbeliever. This is who you were before you came to Christ. You were spiritually dead, not spiritually sick, not spiritually helpless, spiritually dead. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 2.1. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, he says the same things elsewhere, Colossians 2.13. He says, in you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. We are spiritually dead before we come to Christ. That's the reality. I heard a story R.C. Sproul told once. He told the story of a man, and he woke up one morning, and he just laid there in bed, and his wife came to him, and she said, aren't you going to get up and, and get dressed and go to work? And he said, I can't because I'm dead. And she said, you're not dead. You're, you're, you're sitting up in bed. You're talking to me. He goes, no, no, I'm really dead. So she, gets, she says, this guy's, something's a little off here. She calls the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist comes to the house, and he comes into the room and says, sir, what seems to be the problem? He says, well, there is no problem. I'm dead. That, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm gone. I'm dead. He says, sir, you're not dead. You're speaking to me. He goes, no, I am really dead. So the psychiatrist thinks to himself, and he goes, okay, I think I've got a solution to our problem here. So he coaxes the man out of bed, and they go to the local morgue, and he says, let me tell you something about dead people. Dead people don't bleed. So I'm going to give you a pin, and I, and I want you to see a couple of these bodies here. I want you to go prick the hand of these dead bodies and tell me what you see. So he goes, and he pricks, pricks the hands, and sure enough, no blood. Then he says, okay, now I want you to prick your own hand and see what happens. So he takes the, takes the, the pin, pricks his own hand, and blood starts to come out of his finger. And he looks at the psychiatrist and he says, wow, dead people do bleed after all. <laughs> so dead people don't bleed but you know what spiritually dead people do? They don't believe. Spiritually dead people don't believe. And what Jesus does here in John 5 
is he conducts a spiritual autopsy with these people. Remember, Jesus is the Son of God. He has the supernatural ability to read souls. He knows what's in the heart. That's John 2, 24. It says, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew the hearts of the people that were in front of him. And Jesus also knows your heart this morning. You can fool other people with where you stand with Christ. Maybe you're dating someone and you're trying to figure out where they are with Jesus, and they say, yeah, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. And I've talked to people, and, and they, were, they were fooled by the person that they were speaking with. And it turns out later on they got married, and it turns out the person wasn't a Christian. But you know who you can't fool? Jesus Christ. He knows your heart, and he knew these people's hearts. And he conducts this spiritual autopsy, and it's really fascinating. This Jesus really takes out his scalpel and goes down deep, and he uncovers what lies at the heart of unbelief. And what he discovers and what he points out is with unbelief, there's two things that are lacking, two things that are missing, and three things that are present. So let's look at these. The first thing that's lacking, the first thing that Jesus finds is an absence of the Word of God, an absence of the Word of God. Look back at verse 38. Jesus says, and you do not have his Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Last week, we talked about the sovereign work of God, the the calling of God in the heart. And part of that work of the call of God is an implantation of the living and abiding Word of God in the soul of the person so that it begins to grow, it begins to live. The Word of God, which is the Logos, the Christ Himself, begins to live inside the person. We call that being born again, and it's a work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Remember, the parable of the sower. What does the sower do? The sower throws out the seed. What does the seed do? It, it becomes implanted. The parable of the farmer is the same thing. And what we're doing when we share the gospels, we're, pr- we're praying that God will plant that seed of the Word in the heart of the unbeliever so that they might believe. And when that Word becomes implanted, it begins to grow and to bear fruit in that person. John says in John First uh, John 2.14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you. Not that you hear the Word of God, but that the Word of God is making its home in you, that the Word of God has found a place in you, an abode in you. That's what the implication is. And what Jesus is saying here is that's not the case with all these people. The Word of God is not inside of them. And over and over again throughout the Gospels, this is what Jesus encounters. Jesus says in John 8, 37, you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. And the manifestation of this is, if you look uh, at verse 38, he says, you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
you refuse to believe in Christ because you do not have the Word of God inside of you. And because you refuse uh, to believe in Christ, you refuse to believe in the Word of God. And that's why I want you to listen to what I'm about to say very carefully. The unbeliever is never neutral to the Word of God. Never neutral. The unbeliever is always opposed to the Word of God. 100 times out of 100, the unbeliever will be opposed to the Word of God. And you, you don't have to look far. You just look at the ministry of Jesus to see it. Look at all the people that Jesus preached to that rejected the message. Look at his final days. The Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, the, even the people in Jerusalem that, that cried out, Hosanna, 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 they reject him. They refuse to believe in him. One of the great illustrations of this is in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. I want you to turn quickly to Jeremiah, to Jeremiah chapter 6, and then we're going to look at chapter 36. Jeremiah was the prophet that was sent to preach to the people of Judah right before the exile. And his ministry was a ministry that fell on deaf ears. People didn't listen to him. Nobody listened to him besides his, his handy uh, sidekick, Baruch. So this is Jeremiah 6.10. Notice what Jeremiah says. He says, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? In other words, who am I to preach to, Lord? Who am I to preach to? He says, behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. They take no pleasure in it. That right there is the position of the unbeliever. The Word of God confronts them in their sin, and it is a word of scorn. For the believer, the law of the Lord is a delight, right? For the unbeliever, it's death, it's condemnation, so it's rejected. Now, turn to chapter 36. This is such a remarkable chapter. Jeremiah keeps preaching the Word of God. He doesn't resort to other methods. He doesn't resort to comedy shows in Jerusalem to try and get people's attention. He keeps preaching the Word of God. And if you look at chapter 36, this, this chapter, this whole chapter, go study it for homework. It, it's such a sobering, remarkable chapter. I'm just going to read a few verses to you. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord said to Jeremiah. He said, take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until now. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that every one may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. You see that? They won't even let Jeremiah into the temple anymore. So he's got to send his robin, his sidekick, 
and Jeremiah sent him, and he says, so you are to go, and on a day of fasting in the, in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. So that's what Baruch does. He goes when all the people are gathered in the temple. He reads the word of the Lord. And there's a guy that's wandering in the temple that's from the king's court, and he hears the message that Jeremiah uh, gives through Baruch. And that man's name, verse 11, is Micaiah. When Micaiah, the son of Gamariah, son of Shaphon, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. And basically, he says, y'all got to hear this. Y'all got to hear the word of the Lord. This is, this is not good, what God has said regarding what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And so he, he gives this message, and there's another official there named uh, Jehudi, and Jehudi hears this word. He basically takes the scroll that Baruch had read from. He takes that scroll that was given to him by Micaiah. So you see the, you know, there, there's, a, uh, there's transition men along the way, and finally this scroll finds its way to the king, to Jehoiakim. So, verse 21, then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishamah, the secretary, and Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. Listen to this. This right here is the unbeliever's stance to the Word of God. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet, neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Complete rejection of the word of God. And it's done frivolously without fear. Is not that the world that we find ourselves in? A complete scorning of the Word of God, and yet people are not afraid. The church has made a fatal mistake on this point, because the church 40 or 50 years ago began to see the rejection that the culture was pushing back against the Word. And, and they saw the widespread rejection and the animosity and the hatred of the Word of God. And so here's what the churches decided to do. They decided, well, if the culture is rejecting the Word of God, then we need to stop preaching the Word of God. And we need to start trying other methods to win people. We need to try to entertain them. We need to try to to make them laugh. Literally, there were pastors, pastors that were lauded for their leadership, 
that went around knocking on doors, unbelievers' doors, and asked, what would you like in a church? What would you like to hear? Tell us what would you like to hear? And then they gathered all those things, and they said, we're going to build a church on the proclivities of the unbeliever. What does the Apostle Paul say? He says, preach the Word in season and out of season. The fatal mistake is to get away from the Word of God, even though it's rejected. You say, well, it's rejected by the people. What are we to do? You double down on the Word. And I want to show you why real quick, because this verse, I think, is going to change the whole way you understand evangelism and the whole way that you understand the plight of the unbeliever. I want you to turn to 1 Peter and I'm just going to read you three verses. And these three verses are going to shift your paradigm in how you understand unbelief. So you're preaching the gospel. You're sharing the gospel with a family member or a friend. And you encounter that rejection, that, um, that obstinance, that scorn. They, they turn your back on you. What are you to do? You, you keep speaking the Word of God. And this is why. Verse 23 of 1 Peter 1. Look what Peter says. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? How is somebody born again? How is their resistance overcome? How does new life come to them? Look what it says. Through the living an abiding Word of God. You see, the Word of God isn't just an intellectual matter. It's a spiritual, powerful component. And when you speak the Word of God, the Holy Spirit can use that to bring new life and the new birth to the unbeliever. It comes through that living and abiding Word of God. Then he says, for all flesh is like grass in all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the new birth comes through the preaching of the word of God. And that's why if an unbeliever comes, I would prefer them to be uncomfortable I would prefer for them to, to walk away resistant in the Word of God to keep working in their lives. I remember talking to a, a homosexual gentleman who came here, and we preached the gospel, and I spoke to him right outside those doors. And I said to him, did you, did you hear the message? And he said, yeah. And he said, I understand what you're saying. I just can't come to trust Christ right now. But guess what? The Word of God does its work. Not me. I didn't speak to him for a few months, but guess what the next thing I heard about that young man was? Is that he'd come to faith, that he'd been converted, that he'd trusted Christ. And that comes through the Word of God, not watering it down or hiding it behind comedy or, or videos or drama or something like that. It's through the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. So that's the first thing that's absent. We're, we, we're going to spend the most time on that one, so don't worry. These other ones we're not going to spend near as much time on, 
but they flow from that first element, the absence of the Word of God. The second thing that Jesus points to with these Jews is an absence of the love of God, an absence of the love of God. And I want to skip down to verse 42. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That's what's missing. You, you don't have the love of God in your soul. And I want you to think about this. These people arguably are the most religious people that have ever existed on the face of the planet. We're talking about people who went to the temple for all the feasts. We're talking about people who went to the synagogue every Saturday, all day, morning and evening, hearing the Word of God. We're talking about people that kept prayer tassels. We're talking about people that would pray, pray the Psalms, all these things. What are you saying, Jesus? You're saying that we don't love God? Yes. Jesus is saying because all that you're doing is for show. It's hypocrisy. It's not out of love for God. It's to prop yourself up. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say that it was an absence of a belief in God. It was an absence in the love of God. That's such an important distinction. A Christian is not someone who merely believes in the fact of God. A Christian is someone who loves God. That's the difference. I was watching, uh, I, I love watching World War II documentaries, and I was watching this interview of this Marine raider in World War II who had been involved in the island hopping campaigns, and he was describing an amphibious assault. I think it was on Guam, but anyway, he, he gets off the landing craft. He's got his rifle, and he runs up the beach, and he gets to the tree line, and he said, I couldn't I couldn't get through the tree line. It was just the, 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 the shrubberies and the, and the trees. It was so thick, I couldn't get through. And he said, I started to run down uh, the beach horizontally. I ran about 30 yards. And then he said, all of a sudden, there was a voice in my head that said, stop. Stop where you are. And he said, I stopped. And right then, a machine gun, he said, I saw the bullets just skip past me in the sand. And he said, what I did is I turned towards, back towards the trees, and I knelt down right then and there in the middle of this attack. And he said, I, I, I said, God, there is a God in heaven, and I praise you that you saved me. And he, he looks at the camera and, and the interviewer, and this is an old guy, old guy. It takes him a while to say it, and he says, you see, there is a God. But that's, but that's all he says. That's all he says. Now, it's important to get people there because a lot of people don't believe in God. But we can't stop there. We can't stop there. And there's a lot of people in churches across this country that think that they're good because they believe in God. I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm not a Buddhist. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe, I believe those things. I believe in God. Well, what does James say? James says, uh, James 2, 
He says, you do well. Uh, the demons believe that and shudder. So the, the, the Pharisees, they believed in God. That, that wasn't the issue. The issue is that they needed to go further. Jesus says, when talking to one of the scribes and the Pharisees, He says, this is Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You're to love Him with all your affections, all your mind, all your will, everything with who you are. You are to love God. That, that's the great commandment. You are to worship Him. It's not enough to know about Him. It's not enough to say His name on Christmas and Easter. You have to love God with your whole heart. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, you ask, how do I know if I love God? How do I know? Here's how you know. You obey His commands. You obey His commandments. That's 1 John 5.3. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Friend, if you truly love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you truly love God, you will desire to obey Him. Your life will become a living sacrifice. You will desire to crucify secret sins. You will pursue holiness. What does Peter say? Be holy, for I am holy. You will make disciples. That will be a passion to, to preach Christ and to bring other people into the kingdom. Is that one of your desires? You will desire to worship the Lord with God's people on the Lord's day. You will forgive others when you are wronged. You will love your neighbor as yourself. You will study and cherish and love the Word of God. You will fast and you will pray. And you will do these things not out of a sense of cold duty, but because you love God. And the love of God is in you. A Christian who doesn't love God and obey God is an oxymoron. And Jesus is saying, that's what's missing. You're missing the Word of God, and you're missing the love of God. Now, third, he says, this is what's present within you. What's present is spiritual gullibility. Spiritual gullibility. Look at verse 43. I have come in my Father's name. So I come representing my Father. And you do not receive me. Think about Jesus. Jesus came and he had, he had all the requisites for being the Son of God. The Scriptures pointed to every facet of His life, that He would be born in, in Bethlehem, that He would grow up in Galilee, that the forerunner would come before Him. All these requisites were, were met by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I come in the name of the Father, yet you don't receive me. But listen, look at this next line. He says, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What he's talking about there are false messiahs. He's saying, look, I, I know what's going to happen, that others are going to come, and they're going to claim to be the Christ, and you're going to believe them. 
but yet you don't believe me, the genuine article. And historians record that before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, 64 false Christ came to Judea. 64 people came saying that they were the Messiah. And Jesus, of course, warned his disciples about this. You go look at the Olivet Discourse. Uh, this is Mark's version, Mark 13, 21. Jesus says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So there are numbers of these guys going out before Jesus, after Jesus, and they're saying, I am the Messiah. In Acts 5, Luke records uh, several of them. Gamaliel mentions uh, a man named Thutis, a man named Judas of Galilee, and another man named Simon Bar-Koba. And here, here's the reality. The, the Jews are spiritually gullible. They reject the guy who does the miracle right there at the pool of Bethesda. They reject the guy with all of the witnesses pointing to him that he is the Messiah, and they eventually go after these false messiahs. And it's the same way today. You know, we're so uh, historically snobbish. We think that we're so much smarter than our ancestors, but the reality is that every single person in unbelief is spiritually gullible. That's why Osteen is the most watched preacher on television, the guy with the spinning globe behind him. People are spiritually gullible. That's why so many right now are roped into tarot cards, tarot cards and, and spiritual vibes, Scientology, all this stuff, all the cults. You know, you ever wonder, how did, how did Tom Cruise and Travolta get roped into that? They're spiritually gullible. People are spiritually gullible. They'll believe anyone that has uh, authority that tells them this is how it is. And people have believed, and I'm talking about here the, the vast majority of Americans, that if we just educate people well enough, that will end up in this utopian society. People are putting their faith in the public school system. Wow. People are spiritually gullible. That's why you, you, you see people start to carve an object out of wood or stone and then set that up in their house and start worshiping it. You, you ever, how can you do that? You know, you literally just made that thing. And now you say it's a God? What are you thinking? But we do the same thing with our material possessions and so many other things. Here, here's what Satan does. Satan raises up false teachers and false objects of faith like whack-a-mole. You ever play that game? where you hit one and another comes up. Satan, Satan is a master and ingenious at raising up false objects of faith and false teachers. And 
Keith Green said, you know, you run to the end of the highway and you don't find what you're looking for, and then you start looking for another highway. And that's the life of the unbeliever, is it's, I'm grasping for this one thing, and then I see it doesn't end out the way I wanted it to, and then I'm grasping after another. And Satan, he'll do that, he'll play that game till the day you die, raising up more false objects of faith. And that's what happened with these Jews, is it was one false Messiah after another that Satan raised up. So it's the absence of the Word of God, an absence of the love of God, a presence of spiritual gullibility, and fourth, a presence of a desire for vain glory. A presence of a desire for vain glory. Look at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and not seek the glory that comes only from God? Now, this verse is, I think, very underestimated and overlooked. I find this verse to be one of the most frightening verses in the New Testament. Notice carefully what Jesus says. It's a rhetorical question of impossibility. He says, how can you believe? In other words, you can't believe when you receive glory from one another and not seek the glory that comes only from God. These Pharisees, these scribes, they wanted glory from one another. They wanted the, the, the right seat in the synagogue. They wanted the praise of men. Jesus was not about the praise of men. If you turn back to John 5 and look at verse 41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. I'm not concerned about what people think about me. I'm not concerned about the hosannas on my way into Jerusalem. But what I am concerned about is the praise and the commendation of God. That's what he was concerned about. The, the honor of God. God honoring him and he honoring God. That's what Jesus was concerned about. He says, I am not concerned with the praise of people. But what Jesus says here, and this, this right here is so startling. He says, you can't believe me when you are seeking your own glory, your own praise. And the reason for that is because God will not share his honor and glory with anyone else. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And, and this right here gives us real genuine insight to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is entered when you come to the end of yourself. I, 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 th- this is so sobering here. If you are seeking your own glory in your own name, listen to what Jesus is saying. You cannot believe in me. Think about that in this Instagram glory-hungry world we live in, in this celebrity-crazed world we live in, when everybody wants to have a name, 
when everybody wants to be the next big thing, the cover of People or Us Weekly or, or just to, to, for their name to be known in the community, for, for people to praise them. Think about what Jesus is saying. He's saying if that's your desire, if you're, if you're wanting that pat on the back from other people, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Man, I mean, that, that's all of us, right? It's like the rich man. You remember, remember Jesus and the rich young ruler? And Jesus said, you know, it, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples said, well, man, well, who can be saved then? And Jesus' response is, well, with God, all things are possible. So it, it's, this, it's this work of God in your life. This, this is part of being converted is that God humbles you. And you come to the realization that the praise of man no longer matters. You know, my grandpa Castleberry used to say this. You know, he'd come and watch me play football or, or run track or whatever. And after the game, he would always say the same thing. He would look me in the eye and say, all glory is fleeting. And what he meant by that is the glory of man is fleeting. It's here today and gone tomorrow. I don't care who you are. You know, you're, you're famous, but in two generations, you'll be forgotten. The glory of man is fleeting. It doesn't matter. What matters is the glory from God. And, he, and here's the glory that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about on the last day, God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. He's talking about God exalting you and lifting you up. He's talking about what, what Paul says is that, that God is my commendation. I don't care what man thinks about me. That's what he's talking about. He's saying you have to come to the end of your desire to be honored and glorified in this life. Paul puts it like this. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's, that's the mindset of the Christian. The world has been crucified to you and you to the world. I don't care what man thinks about me. I don't care anymore. I've crucified it. And I've come to the place where all I care about is the commendation of God. Amen. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. That's the believer. So how do you get there? How do you get to that point where you say, I'm done. I'm done with what the world thinks about me, and it's only what God thinks about me. Here's the remedy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, listen to this quote. He says, the main trouble with the world is that it isn't interested in God. The way you get there is you see God for who he really is. You get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes up to God. God is inexhaustible. 
God is pure being. Every beautiful thing that you have ever seen was created by him. Every lovely thing that you will ever experience flows from his hand. So get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on him. And when that happens, you will begin to live for his glory. Remember Eric Little, he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. And to run and to win is to honor him. And you do that, and God will honor you on the last day. That's 1 Samuel 2.30. He who honors me, I will honor. It's a promise. 1 Samuel 2.30. Write that down. So it's the absence of the Word of God and absence of the love of God, and then the presence of spiritual gullibility, the presence of a desire for vainglory, and then fifth and finally is the presence of false hope. The presence of false hope. The unbeliever always, you talk to the unbeliever, they always have some sort of false hope, something that they're banking in. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Here's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying that Moses is going to stand up and accuse them on the last day in the judgment. He's saying what Moses wrote in the Scriptures will accuse them. Here's how the Jews had put their hope in Moses. They had put their hope in the fact that they had received the Torah, the Word of God, and the Hittites and the Philistines didn't. They said, man, we're we're great. We're, we're, We're God's chosen people. God gave us the Scriptures. He didn't give it to the Amalekites. He didn't give it to the Assyrians. He gave it to us. We're special. And they said, because of that, God's going to let us in. We're right with God. That's it. But the problem is, is that they didn't study the Scriptures, right? That's verse 39. Jesus says, you, you go search the Scriptures because it, because it is they that bear witness about me. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the same thing. He's saying, look, you should go read Moses, because in Moses, you'll find that he's actually talking about me. That's verse 46. He says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Wrote, Moses began writing about me all the way. Genesis 3.15, that there was a promised one who would bruise uh, the, the, uh, crush Satan's head, and Satan would bruise his heel. He goes all the way back. Verse 47, he says, but if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? You have a false hope in Moses. You have a false hope in the fact that you've received the Scriptures. And with the unbeliever, there is always false hope. You talk to the unbeliever, you say, okay, you know, when you stand before God, what are you hoping in? And it's, well, I'm, I'm hoping in the fact that I was baptized, or I'm hoping in the fact that I tried to be a good person, or I'm hoping in the fact that I was um, that, that I help people, that I help refugees, a number of good things that they might rattle off. And they say, I think, I hope that on that basis, God will let me in. One of my favorite country songs growing up was uh, Pat Green, Willie Nelson. It's a song called Threadbare Gypsy Soul. And it's sad because, this, because it's false hope. It, 
the, the chorus goes like this. It says, I like to hear the highway sounds, and I don't think that I'll ever settle down. I can't change, and it's a sin. I hope St. Peter's going to let me in. Come on, Pete. Won't you let me in? That, that right there is the mindset of the unbeliever. It, it's, I hope, I just hope I can get in. But God's a just God. God must punish sin. And that's why God sent his only son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our mediator, that the wrath of God, your, the sin that you've committed, the punishment, would be placed upon him. And only by faith in him can you be forgiven, right? That's John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, you might be looking at these five descriptors of unbelief, this autopsy that Jesus has performed, and you might be saying to yourself, this is me. This describes me to a T. I don't have the Word of God in me. I don't have the love of God in me. I'm spiritually gullible. I'm about my own glory, and I've been after false hopes. What do I do? Well, there's hope for you. Verse 21. Look up at earlier at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Amazing words. What you need is life. You need new life in Christ. And the way that you receive that new life is praying and saying, God, give me this new life. I've come to the end of myself. I trust you, and I believe that you are the Son of God. I've come to the end of myself, and I put my faith in you. And that new life in Christ will be yours. That's what Jesus promises. Heavenly Father, thank you for this new life in Christ that you have given us, that for those of us who have believed that we are no longer spiritually dead, we are no longer walking in unbelief, but we are now the people of God, that we are now seeking your glory and none of our own, that we now have the Word of God within us, the love of God within us, and we have the sure hope of your promises that we are not going after every new uh, spiritual fad, and that we have a certain hope, a hope that is set and fixed for eternity, that even in turbulent times we will not be shaken. We thank you for all of these things, and we ask that you would enable us to live this life of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.